Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Typical, isn't it? You wait ages for a new prime minister and then three come along in six months. This week, Rishi Sunak has taken command of a party that's been through a bruising ideological battle and taken a battering in the polls as a result. He inherits an economy that's in even worse shape than it was when Liz Truss took charge, which, to be clear, was already very bad. So where does he go from here? Will we see a return to the economic orthodoxy Liz Truss was reacting against? Or will the 3rd pm this parliament find a third way to get us out of the crisis and back onto a path to growth? Welcome to the CapEx podcast, where I'm delighted to be joined by our in-house experts, Tom Clockerty, who's Research Director and Head of Tax, and Carl Williams, Senior Researcher, both here at the Centre for Policy Studies. And we're recording this on a Wednesday afternoon. Rishi Sunak has just done his first PMQs to what was a pretty rapturous reception from his backbenches. It certainly seemed like superficially that they'd heeded his injunction to unite or die, but can we see with his cabinet appointments, you know, as he's tried to reach out to all wings of the party, what do we think the shape of the team that he's assembled says about the direction of policy and how he intends to govern? Tom, do you want to kick off? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I'll start slightly earlier than his cabinet appointments with his speech on the steps of Downing Street, because I think one thing leads quite neatly into the other. Uh, so outside Downing Street, the new prime minister said his focus was on three things. One, economic stability, two, delivering the 2019 manifesto, and three, sort of restoring a sense of trust and competence to the heart of government. And collectively, that is a very good mission for him to set himself. I mean, I think that's exactly what he has to do now as prime minister. But I think you see those fundamental ideas feeding through into his cabinet appointments and this initial approach um, to putting together a team. So economic stability, you know, he's kept Jeremy Hunt as Chancellor, probably any change there would have been disruptive. Um, delivering on the 2019 manifesto, he's brought back some of the big hitters from Boris Johnson's government who are very associated with key parts of that policy agenda, perhaps most notably uh, Michael Gove at the levelling up department. And when it comes to sort of restoring trust and a sense of competence, um, you know, they, they have brought, this isn't exactly a cabinet of greybeards, um, but they've brought back sort of more experienced, um, more well-known, more recognisable conservative figures. Uh, and, and, and hopefully that lends itself to that idea that things are going to calm down. Maybe things will even be boring for a little while, uh, if that's not too wild a thing to hope for. I think one of the things some of uh, some commentators have pointed out that it's it's there are not a lot of women or a lot of fresh faces in in the cabinet, but I think that's slightly spurious given that 
<laughs> we've had more women and ethnic minority prime ministers in the last year than Labour's ever had in its entire existence. It, it won't surprise you that I say this, but I just don't think that's the way we should think about filling key roles in government. The focus should be on people who can do the jobs effectively um, and who represent the broad church of the party and allow the prime minister to govern. Um, and frankly, if you do care about diversity, I think there's plenty of diversity of all sorts sitting around the cabinet table. Yeah, absolutely. And diversity of thought being one of the key ones. And in one of those roles, both someone who thinks a bit differently, perhaps, and a woman, we have Suella Braverman, one of the more eye-catching appointments. Carl, what do you think her appointment says about what we're going to see from the Home Office? Yeah, I mean, firstly, I'd like to say, obviously, this is sort of uh, Rishi's broad church approach to the cabinet and this is about reassuring people on the right of the party that he is listening to their concerns um, and I think it means we're going to see a very robust approach from the Home Office um, both in terms of tackling small boats but also on legal migration and this is an area that's a real concern to many Conservative voters especially the small boats we're on track for double the number of last year since 2018 we've had uh, people crossing small boats enough people to fill up a city like Worcester or Darlington um, so it's a big problem, and she is prepared to entertain controversial policies like leaving the ECHR in search of a solution. He's, she is really keen to actually do something that gets beyond the rhetoric, and I think it would be fair to say that previously um, actions didn't always match the words. Not for any fault of the previous Home Secretary, but just because of the constraints of Cabinet government, uh, and the constraints of what the, the political debate was focused on at the time. Yeah. It, it, it may be a politically astute appointment, I think, in two key ways. First of all, um, the immigration issue, and particularly the small boats issue crossing the channel, um, is an incredibly important one for 2019 Conservative voters, as Carl says. But also, I think... now. It's actually very strange to me that Rishi Sunak is being painted as a, as a globalist or a centrist or somehow on the left of the mm. Conservative Party. I don't actually think that's an accurate reflection of his views at all. Um, but if you hear dear old Nigel Farage on his GB News show, that is the line that he is hammering. And I do think there is, uh, for the Conservatives, a danger um, that they face a challenger on the right at the next election. If there is still, when election time looms around, enough discontent among those 2019 Conservative voters in the North and the Midlands, people who've previously voted for UKIP or the Brexit party, perhaps. It's going to be extremely tempting for someone like Nigel Farage to wade back into electoral politics. Um, and so I think probably there is uh, a clear observation from Sunak and the people around him that he does have to shore up his right flank politically. And those people... Uh, love Suella Braverman. They, they, to the extent that they were conscious of Conservative Party conference going on, um, it was clear from some of the coverage I saw, they sort of lapped up what she had to say. Now, for what it's worth, my own approach on immigration might be somewhat more liberal, um, at least when it comes to economic migration and, you know, high skilled workers and so on. Um, but nevertheless, it's very clear politically uh, what's driving that decision. I mean, let's talk a bit about Rishi Sunak, because I think you're right. I think he is actually a lot more right wing than many people think. On the other hand, he is also he's a 2015 MP. He's a kind of Cameron and Osborne guy. You know, he was part of that coalition that we could broadly talk about as being sort of 
socially liberal but fiscally conservative. I think this polling now shows that that's the exact opposite of an approach that's going to win any election. I think JL Partners have some polling that said every single constituency leans left on the economy and right on cultural issues. And how do we think Rishi Sunak kind of straddles that divide? I mean, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how much uh, latitude he gives his cabinet members to pursue some of these issues. So an interesting appointment here is, for example, Kemi Badenoch to, in addition to international trade, she now has the equalities brief. Uh, yes, yeah, you're right. She, so she um, she has the equalities brief. She's talked before about sort of not about, you know, she doesn't like the online safety bill. She doesn't want to be legislating for her feelings. She she hates identity politics. Do, do we think sort of going on about um, cultural ideas is going to be an election winner? Is it going to be a big feature or is the economy going to play much more? I mean, I, I would feel it's not going to be an election winner in itself at all. Um, but I think that element needs to be there. Um, and I think, you know, as a Conservative MP, MP, you might not be very interested in the culture war, but the culture war is going to be interested in you. So intellectually, they still need to think about these things and think about some of the long-term implications um, of council culture and the effect that it has on our universities and how that then feeds into things that they do care about, like economic growth. So it's not a, not a key election-winning issue, I've, I'd have felt, not, you know, energy crisis, cost of living crisis, these are the key things, but they can't ignore these areas. Yeah, and no, I, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, definitely not something that an election is going to be fought over or decided on. But it is important, I think, in one key respect, which is that Labour has a tendency to make itself look very peculiar in the yeah. eyes of voters. Um, and Keir Starmer is working extremely hard um, to shut down that tendency within his own party. But sometimes they just can't resist. They just can't help themselves. You see this in some of the comments on, uh, you know, conservative cabinet members from non-white backgrounds, for example. Um, and so I think that there is always a chance that these issues just come up unexpectedly. And then it will be helpful for conservatives to have um, a sensible but robust response. Because, you know, we did this... Uh, polling exercise at the Centre for Policy Studies, um, New Majority by James Frayne of Public First. And we actually released it, I think, on the first day of uh, Liz Truss being Prime Minister. Um, but it, it, it sort of looked at the complexion of that 2019 voting coalition, the very different groups of people with very different economic profiles, for example, um, and different beliefs on a whole range of policy issues uh, that went into delivering that uh, big election victory. And really the one uniting factor was a quiet sense of patriotism mm. and a dislike of this cultural stuff when it revolves around doing Britain down, um, sort of pretending that Britain has a uniquely bad history or is a, an unusually evil country um, in the present day. So this is a long way of saying I agree. I don't think it's a, a key dividing line but it could be, and they're right to have people who have coherent responses to these issues in the sort of positions where they're going to have to give them. Yeah, even if it's not something that perhaps per personally animates Rishi Sunak. Um, I suppose an another key factor in the 2019 victory was the promise to level up and uh, to wit, we've seen the return of Michael Gove to that department. What do we think that signals and how is he actually going to do it? Because... I remember the levelling up strategy had a lot of words about sort of Renaissance Florence and not a lot of 
you know, actual substance? Well, look, levelling up was always going to be a difficult pledge to deliver on when you had five years and a fair economic wind. Uh, now that we're faced with two years when in the intervening period little progress has been made, maybe somewhat for understandable reasons like dealing with a global pandemic. Um, but to me, this is a, a huge challenge because if this government was born on the promise of levelling up, and that's what attracted many of these voters to it, in many cases for the first time, um, if they're seen to have done nothing to improve the lives of people in sort of ordinary towns in the Midlands, in the north, in left behind coastal regions, whatever you have, um, that's a serious problem for the Conservatives because governments have to run on their records, basically. Uh, in a way, Boris Johnson was able to run as if he was something entirely new and unfamiliar because to a certain extent he was. But I think come 2024 or whenever it is, it's going to be really hard to pretend that the Conservatives haven't been in government for 14 years and they're going to have to refer to their pledges and how they've honoured them and how they've delivered on them. But what can you really do to level up the country in two years? Because these are sort of huge, deep-seated um, issues involved with sort of industrial decline and demographics and just fundamental geography. Um, and it does seem that simply spending a bit of money uh, to tart up high streets around the country, uh, well, maybe that is feasible. Um, but it doesn't really uh, cohere with this new era of um, fiscal discipline and potential austerity we have on our hands. So, I mean, if anyone can do it, then perhaps Michael Gove is the man for the job. Uh, but it's not an easy one, in my opinion, not by any stretch of the imagination. Carl, what would you like to see Michael Gove do? I think he's also got the, the housing brief. Uh, well, housing is critical, really is, um, in terms of people's living standards, in terms of economic growth. Uh, it has been probably the single biggest policy area holding back um, Britain and is also one of the main sources of um, intergenerational strife. And, you know, if the Conservative Party is going to be the, the party of a property-owning, capital-owning democracy, um, they need to get sorted on housing, otherwise... They're in for a structural decline as young people can't get on the housing ladder. Um, and you have to remember as well, a lot of young people will be alienated around issues such as Brexit. Um, I think there's some polling recently saying that only 7% of people under the age of 25 would consider voting Conservative. Um, and, you know, historically, people move to the right as they get older, but the structural trends that maybe enabled that before, especially housing, are just not in place now. Yeah. Property-owning democracy and we're not building enough homes, and that's a problem which is becoming increasingly, increasingly apparent with the Conservative Party. Um, and just getting away from the, the narrower politics of it all, it uh, is a huge drag on the economic potential of Britain. Um, you know, all these, these very sort of well-documented uh, agglomeration effects you have from big cities, um, on the efficiency of commute times and so on, uh, and it's hugely holding us back so yeah more houses please Michael <laughs> I mean it's probably deterring people from forming families uh, having children and so on as well so mm. it's it's a catastrophe across multiple fronts and you know I've been at the CPS since 2018 throughout that period we've been saying if conservatives don't tackle the housing problem they have no future as a political force in this country mm. and just to just to build on that we um we were had an intern going for our archives recently documenting it all 
And uh, we found our first report with the word of the use NIMBY, and I think it was from the early 90s. So we were warning about this 30 years ago. God, and still so little progress has well, been made. Exactly. And I think this brings us on, because we were talking about how important this is for growth, to the upcoming budget. Um, and it's fair to say we've seen a change of tack since the last time we had a, a mini budget. Um, but what do you think we can expect to see um, from Jeremy Hunt? Tom, perhaps you can start. Yeah, well, it, it's clear, I think, that the tone of all of Jeremy Hunt's statements uh, since he was appointed Chancellor uh, will continue through this autumn uh, autumn statement. Um, so we're not going to suddenly have a return to free spending, tax cutting, bonanzas. Um, that's all off the table for the time being. Um, so this will have to look and sound um, sober, realistic, conservative, responsible, etc., etc. Um, those sort of have to be the optics of it. Now, to what extent do they actually have to engage in further fiscal tightening, whether that's further spending cuts or whether it's you know additional tax increases um, to me that's unclear uh, because I think that you know we've already seen borrowing costs fall back to where they were before the mini budget um, when you compare us with other large economies we are not in a worse fiscal position um, compared to our international peers in fact in many cases we are we are better off in the medium term than they are. Um, so if we've successfully ridden out this period of panic, um, maybe this upcoming fiscal statement does not have to be as austere uh, as some people are suspecting. And by the way, you know, I think for better or worse, they are going to be led on this by the assessments of the Office for Budget Responsibility. So much hinges on uh, the OBR's forecast for inflation, uh, for growth, borrowing costs um, and that will determine I think the size of the fiscal hole that the government has to fill or at least show that it's ready and able to fill. Do we have any idea how big we think that hole is? I mean I think the IFS was saying 40 billion is that right? I mean I think I've, I've heard everything from 30 to 70 depending on the assumptions that you plug in. Uh, now my suspicion when this all comes round is that we will stick to the spending totals that Rishi Sunak set when he was Chancellor in nominal terms, but because we've had a period of high inflation, that does mean you know tight departmental spending limits. Um, we'll probably have some sort of big efficiency drive across government. I imagine that the international aid spending commitment will stay at 0.5% of GDP rather than rising again. Uh, perhaps planned increases in defence spending might be pushed a little bit further out into the future. Um, and I can see a sort of process of, uh, let's thankfully call it reprioritization among <laughs> capital spending projects, um, which in a rational world, you would, you would forge ahead with the ones that have the highest potential returns, uh, but maybe soft pedal a bit on the things that are nice to haves, but not essentials. But of course, you know, I say all that, there is a real tension with doing that on the one hand and delivering the 2019 manifesto on the other, because that was new hospitals, uh, better schools, more police, etc. Um, and to a certain extent, those commitments made in 2019 were predicated on governments having very low borrowing costs, being able to borrow and invest 
quite freely and it's less clear that we're still in that kind of situation. Um, so that's going to be a big economic challenge for them, even before you get to the fact that in all likelihood we're already in a recession and that recession is going to continue into next year. Um, many would uh, question the wisdom of simultaneously tightening monetary policy and fiscal policy as you go into a recession. Uh, you know, it's quite possible actually that by trying to make things better, you make them worse because the economy shrinks more or doesn't grow as much and the fiscal hole is, is, is increased or enlarged rather than shrunk. So there are some very, um, very serious judgment calls they have to make and it's not at all an easy situation to be in. Mm. Can I just come in on that? Um, another sort of big uncertainty around the size of the fiscal hole will be how energy prices play out over the winter um, because of course the government is committed up until April at least to um, a, a cap on the unit price of uh, power consumed. And if gas prices remain where they are now, then, okay, it's still very bad, but it's not as bad as the worst case scenarios that were being talked about even a few weeks ago. Um, so potentially there's a room there for a lot of additional fiscal headroom. Maybe it's going to be worse than we think. Um, so that's going to make, I think, the OBR's job quite tricky. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I mean, we're not expecting any kind of good news in the upcoming budget, but is there anything that we can hope for, any of the kind of supply-side reforms we like to talk about? Is there anything we'd like to see that might leave us feeling a bit more positive when whatever Jeremy Hunt sort of delivers? I, there is perhaps one thing that I think had uh, everything not been thrown into turmoil over the summer, uh, with Boris Johnson being forced out, had Rishi Sunak remained Chancellor and had been delivering this autumn statement himself, um, I think we would almost certainly have seen some kind of announcement on capital allowances, which mm. is the other side of the coin from the corporate tax rate. So Rishi Sunak's plan on corporation tax was always to raise the headline rate, but at the same time make the investment allowances that underpin the tax much more generous, um, so that companies are encouraged to invest because they can write off their investment costs much more immediately against tax. It was always kind of a quid pro quo, and the Treasury had consulted over the options for that, 
over the summer. And so, as I say, I think if everything had continued as planned, Rishi Sunak would have been standing up in November and announcing um, some fancy new reform to capital allowances. And I think that the, that's an extremely important thing um, for the government and for the Treasury to do, because it's a, it's a very clear area where we lag behind the competition internationally. And at the moment, we have the super deduction, uh, which is very generous, but it expires in April. And we are going to go almost overnight from having a pretty competitive corporation tax system to one that, frankly, is no good at all when you compare it to other big economies around the world. And that's a bad situation for Britain to be in. The difficulty, of course, is that it would cost money. And we don't know what kind of uh, opportunities for tax reform, if any, will be allowed uh, based on the fiscal envelope that they, they set themselves or that the OBR sets for them. But if we see anything, that's what I hope to see in November. Carl, do you have anything that you're hoping to see? No, I, I, I have no hope at the moment, unfortunately. Oh. Um, I, I would have loved them to carry on with the uh, policy of hydro allowing hydraulic fracturing. Um, but of course, the moratorium was in their 2019 manifesto, and if they're going back to that, we've lost on that front. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're saying, or at least I'm saying, we're not going to see any of the sort of Liz Truss-style supply-side reforms announced in the fiscal statement. Yeah. And you know, probably correctly so, because this should focus on balancing the books and, and taxes and so on. But should that pro-growth agenda just wither away? Um, I mean, absolutely not, in my opinion. If anything, it is more essential now than it was at the mini-budget, however many weeks ago. Because if you are facing a difficult fiscal situation, the number one thing you need is economic growth. It makes everything so much easier. And the most important reforms that the government could institute, uh, whether it's on housing, whether it's on infrastructure or energy or childcare, um, they're, they're about removing regulatory barriers. They need not cost anything. And, you know, if I'm in the situation of Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak right now, what I'm desperate for above anything else is things that don't cost much and things <laughs> that will deliver growth, because that's going to make my economic life easier and it's going to give me some chance of winning another election. Mm. And if you want to cut taxes further down the line, it's quite clear now that we need to do the supply side reforms first. Yeah, absolutely. I think that kind of brings us on to perhaps, you know, a bit of an obituary for Liz Truss. I mean, you described it, Tom, as, as a period of panic. <laughs> but is there anything worth salvaging from the, the very brief Truss era? Is there, you know, anything good we can say about her? Yes, I think it's very clear that lots of things went wrong. Um, there were bad judgments made. There was also some pretty rough luck, in my opinion, as well. Um, but if we if we zoom out from the details of the policies, from their sequencing, uh, from the way they were communicated, there was a fundamental insight uh, behind the Liz Trust campaign, and which was supposed to sort of animate her premiership. And that was the idea that Britain's economy is not growing fast enough. It hasn't grown fast enough for quite some time. And unless we get it growing faster, we're in serious trouble. We're in economic trouble, we're in political trouble, we're in social trouble. Um, we're basically in a bad spot if we just stagnate. Nothing else will work without robust economic growth. Um, and you, as I say, you can argue about all of the details, 
But that fundamental insight was right, remains right, and actually should be central to conservative thinking. And I don't think, I think Rishi Sunak is a smart enough guy to understand that point. And indeed, it's a point that he himself made, for example, in his May's lecture um, as mm. chancellor. He understands the imperative for growth as well as anybody. The exact approach he takes will doubtless be different from Liz Truss's. Um, but nevertheless, that principle really needs to drive conservative thinking. Yeah, okay, so another question that people are asking is given we've had such kind of overwhelming regime change, do we need to have a general election now? Does this government still have a mandate from 2019? I think it's pretty clear that Rishi Sunak will not want a general election and that part of the rationale for going back to the 2019 election manifesto and saying this is our guiding document in government uh, is to say that we are honouring the mandate we got from the people in 2019 and to try and circumvent those calls for an election. Now, constitutionally, I'm sure people don't need me to tell them this, there is absolutely no need for a general election. Um, Rishi Sunak, as Prime Minister, commands the confidence of the House. There are a couple of years left to run on this parliamentary term. Uh, there's really no problem. We've, we've changed Prime Ministers without a general election so many times over the 20th century um, that it's, it's, it's basically a perversion of British constitutional tradition, I think, um, to pretend that we're a presidential system and mm. that the mandate, as it's called, uh, adheres to the particular person who is prime minister um, and not to you know, the representatives in parliament. So that's, that's one aspect of it. So I, I, I think another aspect of it is mm. that, you know, an election is clearly the last thing that the markets need. Mm. More uncertainty, more chaos. Um, you know, we've seen that, that the markets don't wait to vote, right? Mm. Um, and they've voted for stability. Yeah, ab absolutely. And Britain since 2016, frankly, has been rocked by wave after wave of political instability of one form or another. And I think earlier in this podcast, I said maybe government would be boring for a while. And I think everyone would appreciate that from the financial markets to the ordinary voters. Uh, now, there is one sort of interesting case that I've heard made for a general election, and perhaps it's worth just reflecting on, uh, because it comes from James Frain, who wrote that new majority report for us about the 2019 coalition. Um, and his argument is that if, if, if we are really going to do another wave of austerity, that is impossible without public consent. And that if you really do have to bring in swinging cuts to public services, tax increases on ordinary voters and so on, um, if you try to do that without a specific electoral mandate of the sort that Cameron had in 2010, um, it's going to lead to some pretty nasty outcomes, uh, whether that's civil unrest or whether it's just, you know, absolute obliter obliteration when the election finally is forced on you, um, you know, by the electoral calendar. Um, now, I don't, I don't agree. <laughs> I think, I think that if we can get the economy stabilised, 
um, if we can honour some bits of the 2019 manifesto, if we can do some stuff to spark a little bit of growth, um, you know, back end of next year and belong, uh, beyond, you know, we won't need the kind of austerity that people have been fear-mongering about um, in the press recently. Uh, but nevertheless, I thought it was worth, worth, worth raising that argument because James is, is incredibly sharp. Um, and so when he, when he says those kind of things, I tend to listen. I mean, that perhaps brings us on to the vexed question of the next general election. What do we think Sunak's prospects for winning are? They're not great. (laughs) 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 Um, And I mean, look, part of that is simply that the political pendulum will eventually swing back in the other direction. Um, By the time of the next election, I would imagine the Conservatives will have been in power for 14 years, maybe more. That is a very long time and there's a limit as to how many times you can reinvent yourself. Having said which, I don't think that it's a foregone conclusion um, because I don't think that Labour is necessarily offering an attractive alternative that people are desperate to vote for. It's it's a cliché, but it's a cliché for a reason. Um, that oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. And Conservatives have frankly spent years uh, doing their best to lose elections when they finally come around. Um, And the whole Sunak Premiership is predicated on restoring stability, both economic and political, and then hopefully building some sort of a track record that he can go to the people on next time around. So, you know, my expectation would be those quite outlandish opinion polls that we've seen recently with gargantuan Labour leads, that should narrow fairly quickly. Probably some kind of Labour lead is going to be stubborn for a while, especially if economic conditions uh, are not helpful. But it's worth recalling, Theresa May blew, what was it, a 23-point lead in the election, in, in the opinion polls, in the space of two months. So with two years, maybe more than two years, uh, there is some hope. It's interesting what you said there about... Um storing stability and using that as his uh, offer to the electorate uh, puts me in mind almost of Stanley Baldwin in the, the Safety First campaign. Mm. Um, of course, that was an electoral defeat, but not a big one. Um, it was a, a fairly narrow thing. Mm. And I, I'd say intuitively, I, I feel like it's going to be yes, very hard for Conservatives to win. Um, but I could easily see kind of a, a hung parliament situation emerging mm-hmm. from this. I think it's worth reflecting on why this matters to the country. This isn't just about the future of the Conservative Party. You know, what we need right now is a a capable government that is, as we say, going to restore growth. And at the moment, I mean, does Labour look like it's in a position to do that? Tom's not shaking his head. Yeah, I don't know why I'm shaking my head on the podcast, obviously. The listeners listeners can't see the look on my face. Uh, No, look, I mean, Labour are not nearly as scary a prospect as they were under Jeremy Corbyn. Um, that could have been absolute disaster for Britain had he been elected. And, you know, it's worth saying, uh, whatever Boris Johnson's failings, he, you know, he sent Corbyn packing. And Keir Starmer has realised that he has to keep that whole wing of the Labour Party, you know, closely under wraps um, if they're going to be an effective electoral force. So Labour aren't scary anymore. But nor are they the centrist force that they were in the Blair years. Um, They clearly have still shifted significantly to the left. Um, Their approach to tax will damage our prosperity. Um, Their approach to labour relations will take us back years, if not decades. 
um, their cultural agenda, which I'm sure once they're in government will leak out, um, is, is frankly against what almost all ordinary voters want. Um, but nevertheless, that you can see a sort of creeping through the institutions. Um, so, look, I mean, it, I don't think that a Labour government would be a disaster, um, but nor do I think it would necessarily resolve any of the problems that we face as a country. Uh, of course, the problem is the Conservatives haven't been resolving those problems themselves. And if they don't get their act together quickly and start dealing with those issues and making progress on them, I mean, then frankly, they will deserve to lose. They have no right to be in government. They have to prove that they're worth it. I think that's probably a good moment to end. Um, thank you so much. It's been, yeah, it's been a wild week, but this has been an oasis of calm and good sense. So thank you so much, Tom and Carl, for joining me. Um, and do tune in again to the CapEx podcast and subscribe and leave us a review if you enjoy it. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. <laughs> not, not a bad review if you hated it. Thanks. Bye! 